Good morning. Welcome to West Meadows, whether you're on site or online. We are glad that you have taken time to be with us today. We're continuing our series called Resilient this morning, and as we uh, have seen last week and we'll see in the weeks ahead, we are walking through the events and some of the story of the, the life of an Old Testament character named Joseph. Last week here with us, we know we talked about adversity, having resiliency in the face of adversity, and today we're going to continue the story of Joseph and see how he was able to overcome and be resilient in moments of temptation. Now, I don't know exactly what your biggest temptation was, and I'm not going to ask you, so it's not that kind of a service today, but I do know this. I do know that every single one of us, on-site and online, are tempted by something. There's something in this world that when it comes into your life, you have a hard time saying no. There's something in this world that when you encounter it, it's impossible to avoid it. You feel like you're going away from it, but then you're kind of drawn back towards it perhaps, and it's difficult to avoid keeping it out of your life. I was thinking about what, what's a common example of this, and I looked across my office, and I saw this. This is Brenda's candy dish. Is Brenda, is she with us? Is she in the foyer still? Yeah, Brenda would recognize this for sure. This sits on Brenda's desk. And uh, as Brenda is training Lisa to become our new bookkeeper February 1st, filling the candy dish is on the job description. It's, it's part of the bookkeeper's job to make sure that there's candy in here. And, and the reason that this is important is this symbolizes the fact that everybody is tempted by something. You know how I know? Because based upon what's in this jar... What type of candy will determine how fast and who is responsible for emptying that jar? You see, right now, for example, there are some jujubes in there. Not too many, because it's been in there for a bit, but it's been a slow, slow time of eating these jujubes. Nobody's that tempted by them in the office. But if you could get a little closer look at it, you see that there are red ones and green ones. There are no black ones. Why? Because Shelly came by, and Shelly ate the black jujubes out of the candy jar. Now, if this empties and Brenda were to fill it with, let's say, Coke bottles, those gummy Coke bottles, which would probably actually never happen because Brenda loves Coca-Cola, and that would be self-sabotaging if she had that right in front of her on her desk. Now, if you fill this with gummy worms, Zach will burn a trail from his office to Brenda's and probably empty the jar in a day. If you fill this jar with sour gummies, Andrew and I will wrestle. We'll, we'll get out there and we'll throw it down to see who gets to finish the jar of, summer, of sour gummies. You see, everybody in the office has their favorite and will be responsible for emptying that jar based upon what's in there. You see, all of us are tempted by something. What tempts you may not be what tempts me, but we're all tempted by something. Here's something else I know about temptation. Is that when acted upon, it has very real consequences in our lives. Now, talking about some candies, the worst consequence you get from a candy might be a cavity. Maybe if you eat enough of them, you might put on a couple of pounds. If you eat them too early in the day, you might have like a sugar crash and low productivity in the afternoon. It might spoil your dinner. That, that's about as bad as it gets when we're talking about a candy jar. But all of us know that life throws more our way than just some candies. All of us know there are many more serious temptations and therefore many more serious consequences from what life brings our way. 
I'm sure we all could tell stories and we could list names of athletes who have been stripped of titles, of people who run home run competitions, but there's an asterisk beside their name now because, well, performance-enhancing drugs were used. We probably know people in business who lost their jobs, were charged with criminal activity, went bankrupt because they were tempted to, to cheat a little bit. We may even know probably pastors who were disqualified from ministry because of moral failure, politicians who were convicted and removed from office, marriages that were shattered, witnesses of God that were tarnished because of temptation. Because here's the problem with temptation. You see, temptation promises you momentary pleasure, but it costs you your greatest treasure. Temptation promises you this momentary pleasure, but it will cost you your greatest treasure. That's why we need to be resilient when we are tempted. And the story of Joseph we're going to look at today, he gives us an example of what that looks like. And we actually have the benefit in the story of seeing the two paths that come our way. We have the one path of resiliency where we, where we avoid it, but there's another path we're going to look at as well where there are consequences. See, today in Genesis chapter 39, if you want to flip in your Bibles to the story, that's where we'll be starting. We'll be starting there in just a moment. Genesis chapter 39. We'll find that, that in Joe's life, you don't have to go looking for temptation. It will come find you. And most often, it will come find you in a very strategic manner. They'll dangle the bait in the water. They'll be enticing. And then if you, if you, if you take the bait, you find out there's also a hook. And the hook pulls and has consequences. And as we know, any fishermen or fisherwomen in, in the audience today, and you get that hook and pull, it eventually leads to death, to loss. But there's another path. There's the path of resilience. The path of remaining faithful to the God who remains faithful to you. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, God is faithful. Say that with me. God is faithful. Let's try that one more time. I know we can't sing, but we can say the word of Scripture. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it in his strength. You see, God's way, God provides a way where you do not lose your greatest treasure for a moment of pleasure. If you missed last week, let me give you a quick recap of where we're at in the story of Joseph. A bit of a refresher for you as well if you were with us. As we start Genesis chapter 29, it begins by referencing the end of the adversity that Joseph faced back in chapter 37. See, Joseph comes from a privileged family that was blessed by God, but it was also a very dysfunctional family. You see, in his family, there was one dad, four moms, thir- ran out of fingers, 13 step-siblings, of whom Joseph was the favorite. And everybody knew it. How'd they know it? Because uh, uh, Jacob, their father, told them so. And Joseph flaunted it. His brothers didn't appreciate it, and they decided to put an end to it. So their first thought was, well, kill him and be done with it. But then the, the plan morphs to, well, let's just throw him down a dry well and figure out what we're going to do with him from there. And while they're trying to figure out what the next steps are, as Joseph is stripped of everything and sitting in this well, some caravan merchants come by, and they decide, I know. We'll ship them off to Egypt with the merchants. We'll take the money. We'll go back home to dad. Problem solved. And so, Genesis 
Chapter 39, verse 1 begins by saying, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Now Potiphar is a very powerful, very important man. His title is captain of the guard. So this gives a sense that he has a military role, which was very important in this nation. And he was probably the equivalent of like today's modern-day kind of four-star general. It's about as high as you can go in influence and power. And even his name Potiphar conveys his importance and, and significance. Because the name Potiphar means he who Ray gives. And Ray was the name of the Egyptian sun god. And the sun god was believed to be the creator of everything, including the creator of all the other gods. And so in this name Potiphar, he was bestowed with this name that says Potiphar. This man, this military general, was a gift of the gods. And because of that, he was probably extremely successful and accomplished, which means that he not only has a high lofty title and responsibility, but he lives in an expansive compound that would have many, many servants, lots of events going on of a personal nature, but also as an official nature. And this is Joseph's new home. This is Joseph's new job, to be a servant in the home, in the compound of Potiphar. But in this course of arriving here, he is stripped of all of his possessions. He's stripped of his pride. He's stripped of his position. But he was not stripped of his greatest treasure. And we see this as we start reading in Genesis chapter 39 in verse 2, where it says, the Lord was with Joseph. Can you say that with me? The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with Joseph and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in the eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his entire household and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything in the hand of Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except what he had to eat. What was his greatest treasure? What was Joseph's greatest treasure? The Lord was with him. Even in the midst of this, the Lord was with him. He remained faithful to the God who remained faithful to him. And in the course of this, everything that Joseph put his hand to, everything he put his mind to succeeded. And Potiphar noticed. What did he notice? He noticed the Lord was with Joseph. And Potiphar's a smart guy. He didn't become a strong leader by accident. He knows if you got a good guy on staff, you promote from within. And so he elevates Joseph to this point of being in charge of all of the servants, all of the activities, all the responsibilities for the whole compound. Potiphar's only concern that's left, what should I have for dinner? Everything else is taken care of. Joseph, a trustworthy, capable, hardworking, God-honoring servant. Joseph, a guy who's staying busy, who's minding his own business, 
Not looking for trouble, just looking to do his job and do it well. And what happens? Temptation finds him. Reading in verse 6. Now Joseph was a well-built and handsome man. And after a while, the master's wife came and took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. We all know that if you go looking for trouble, you're going to find it. Like, we know that if you go to certain places, if you do certain activities, don't be surprised if you find what you're looking for. In the realm of temptation, we know this is true. If you struggle with alcohol, you know you shouldn't go to a bar. If you struggle with lust, you know there's certain websites and things you should not be going to. If you struggle with gossip, you know that there's certain social media apps and, and maybe even certain people you need to avoid who just tempt you into that. If you struggle with gambling, you don't go cruising the parking lot of the River Cree. You know that you stay away from things. You avoid such places. And by doing so, you limit your exposure. You limit the opportunity to be tempted. But here's the thing, folks. We can do that, and we should do that, but it does not make you immune. It does not make you immune to temptation. Because Joseph was doing his best to remain faithful and true to God, and yet temptation still found him. But thanks be to God that being tempted is not a sin. See, temptation is just the bait in the water. Sin happens when we take it, when we take the bait and get hooked. We read about this in James 1, chapter, four, chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, where it talks about the temptation cycle using fishing analogies, fishing language. And if you want to hear more about that, I won't go into it all today, but I spoke on that passage back on August 30th on a message on self-control. You can go back in our westmeadows.org message page, and you'll find August 30th, a message on self-control about James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, the, the temptation cycle. In 15 seconds, basically, here it is. Each person is tempted when they are lured. Fishing lures, you kind of drop it in the water and it's enticing to the fish. It gets their attention. Each person is tempted when a lure is dropped into the water and it entices them. And then the fish, or us, move out from our place of safety and we take the bait. And when we take the bait, we enter into this time of sin where, where being enticed can, leads to the conception of sin. Because you're not able to avoid the hook. Therefore, sin leads to death, it says. It costs you something. All people have experienced this. I think we've all experienced the idea of the enticement, the bait, the hook, the loss. All people have experienced this because we're not immune to it. And we can take some assurance that the temptation itself is not a sin because Jesus himself was tempted. You can perhaps read this this afternoon or at some point during this week. And in Matthew chapter 4, we read about how Jesus was taken away into the desert. And he, he was fasting and praying for 40 days. And then the enemy came to him and repeatedly tried to lure him away from God's plan. Tempted him to turn to, to trust in something other than God. Drop the bait in the water. You're hungry. Turn those rocks into bread. Just eat. Maybe not a boulder, but a pebble. Just a morsel. You're, you got a big challenge ahead of you. Are you sure? Are you sure God's going to protect you? 
why don't we just throw yourself down from here and, and see if you will? He tempts him. But every time Jesus responds, it is written, it is written, it is written, which gives us evidence that the word of God is a weapon we have to stand against temptation, but it also shows that Jesus was not willing to abandon his greatest treasure, his relationship with his heavenly father who was faithful to him. And so he stood the ground and he said, away from me, Satan, you've lost and Hebrews 4.15 says this, We do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every single way we are. Just as we are, he was tempted, but he did not sin. Joe is just trying to live his best life under the circumstances. But temptation still found him. And he faces a choice. It's a choice that we all have to make when we are enticed. Do we take the bait? And do we allow momentary pleasure to cost us our greatest treasure? Or will we be resilient and remain faithful to the God who is always faithful to us? Well, as we keep reading in Genesis chapter 39, verses 8 through 12, we find that Job made the right decision. Here's what happened, verse 8. But he refused. He said, with me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater than me in this house. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. He even refused to simply be with her. We see here something that we all know from our own experiences. That temptation will not only find you, but it's often so strategic in how it finds you. And we can see this, and you can understand why it's so appealing. Like some of the candies in here are not tempting, but some of them are, and the enemy knows which ones are. That's why it's so appealing. You see, look at the story of Joseph here. Consider a few steps along the way of, of the strategy of the enemy. First of all is the timing. Joseph has just come through an incredible moment of adversity. He has been rejected and betrayed by everybody he loved and he thought loved him. As his brothers sold him off into slavery and were threatening to take his life. He now finds himself in Egypt, lonely and isolated, completely abandoned, and I imagine emotionally and relationally he's destroyed. And so he turns himself to his work. I'll, I'll just put my nose to the grind and I'll just work hard. But because of all the relational and emotional stuff going on in this particular time, he's susceptible. Timing is part of the strategy. So too is the type of temptation. Let's not forget that, that Joseph is a 17-year-old young man who's away from home. Who has just been abandoned by everybody and everything for the most part. And here comes this woman who desires him. Who wants to pay attention to him. And let's not pretend this was easy for Joseph. Let's not pretend he wasn't enticed. Like I think it's a safe assumption to, to believe that Potiphar's wife was very, very beautiful as well. Because consider, Potiphar could have chosen anybody he wanted in the whole land, given his position, for who would be his wife. 
given his position and his wealth, she would have had access to the finest of the beauty treatments, to the best of the best clothing, to the best perfumes that were available. It's reasonable to assume that he was enticed and he wrestled with it. It's a very specific type of temptation that fits the timing and the person. But then there's also the trade-off. You see, she's offering companionship. She's, she's offering pleasure. She, she's saying, let's bring some excitement to this life that is so difficult for you. But there's a trade, you see, because it costs something. And that's what he recounts in verses 8 through 12, what it costs him. He says, yes, you're offering companionship and pleasure and excitement, but on this hand, I would lose the trust of my employer. I would lose the respect and the position I have above others. I would violate my own character. I would be helping you to betray your husband. And most importantly, Joseph says, how could I do that to my God, who has been so faithful to me? See, temptation is often very strategic in terms of timing, type, and trade. And so considering this, let's actually just take a moment right now and and consider these questions. You see, if we're going to be resilient, we need to know the enemy's playbook. We need to know how he's coming after you if you're going to know how to respond. And so let's just take a moment and process this. You, you might want to think about these next three questions I'm going to ask you. Or perhaps if you have the, a pen and paper or an iPad device, you can write these down and think about them later. Even right now, if you're at a safe place if, uh, online where you're on your own, you can talk about these things in a safe place. Consider the playbook. Consider the strategy the enemy uses against you. First of all, let's think about timing. When are you most vulnerable to temptation? Are you most vulnerable when you're stressed and you're thinking, I just need to relax. I just, I just wish I could relax. I'm so stressed and, and wound up. Are you susceptible when you're bored and you just have time on your hands and you're not quite sure how to fill that time? Are, are you susceptible when you're alone, when you, you know that you isolate yourself, your mind and your desires go somewhere that, uh, that's not healthy? When you're in a moment where you feel either at work or at home by, by an employer or by a spouse, you're just not appreciated. And you know what? I deserve this. What, what time? What is the timing when you are most susceptible to temptation? You need to know this. Why? Because your enemy knows it. And he's going to use it. The second question is what type of temptation? What are those danger areas? What are the lures that you have a hard time saying no to? That you just... You have a hard time saying no to, but also you know in your own, own thoughts that when I'm stressed, when I'm alone, when I'm feeling unappreciated, I actually look for these things. Maybe I actually go looking for these things during times, certain times. Perhaps it's a substance. Perhaps for some people, they, they need a drink just to relax. They, they need food to feel comfortable. They, they need prescription medicines to escape. Perhaps it's a person where there's certain people you hang around and you know you're just different when you're with them and, and you don't like it, but they're your friends and, and so, so I just keep doing it. But you know you're different and you don't like who you are when you're with them. Maybe it's a person in your office, in your school, or, or some other place where it's like, no, it's just some innocent flirting. That's just how we relate. We never go anywhere. 
What other types are there? With people, people who gossip, virtual people on the internet that help us enter into fantasy places. What type of temptation? And then thirdly, what trade does that temptation ask you to make? Like, what do you stand to lose if you give in? And this could be one of the most powerful things you can do is to take an inventory of what do you stand to lose if you give in? Sometimes it's simple with a little candy, right? Moment on the lips, forever on the hips, right? They say, you know, a little trade, a little trade-off. But we know there's more serious ones, right? We know there's more serious ones when you take the bait of, of a bigger temptation. I, I put myself in the spot of Joseph. And I thought, if I was Joseph and I gave in, what, what do I stand to lose? What do I stand to lose in the same situation? And so I did the inventory, and I thought, if I did that, I would lose, completely lose the trust of my wife, and possibly my wife altogether. I would lose the respect of my children for betraying my wife, and possibly the respect of many of you as well. I would forever have an asterisk beside my ministry for the failure that took place. I would tarnish the good news of Jesus Christ because I'm a representative of Christ in the world. And I would give the world more ammunition to shoot back at the church as to why they don't want to be a part of it. The cost is too high. The cost is too high for the momentary pleasure to cost me my greatest treasure. See, folks, if we're going to be resilient when tempted, we need to be faithful to the people and to the commitments that we've made. Because God is faithful to you and to the commitments that he's made to you. And what did Joseph do? Gone. He fled and left her holding the cloak in his hand. He bolted so fast, he got out of there. He had nothing to prove. He left so suddenly, it ripped the cloak off, and he's Donald Duck in it, you know, shirt, no pants. As he goes running out of that room, half naked through the whole house, just gone. Joe did the right thing. He maintained his integrity, he maintained his faith, he maintained his innocence. So we celebrate as a hero. End of the story, right? That's how life works out. Not quite. You see, because while Joseph stayed on track, Potiphar's wife didn't. And because of that, we also have an opportunity in this passage to see what that other path looks like. To, to glimpse the consequences when enticement gives birth to sin. You see, all persons have, have experienced this, right? We, we've all experienced sin in our lives. Is that a fair assumption to make? Yeah, the Bible says we have, so I'm going to go with that. We've all experienced sin in our lives. And because I know we've all experienced sin in our lives, I, I think it's safe to assume that we all know that sin feels good in the moment. If it doesn't feel good, you might not be doing it right. See, see sin feels good in the moment, but it feels terrible after the moment. You see, afterwards we find the shame and the guilt and the anxiety, which is where Potiphar's wife finds herself now. As she looks at the cloak in her hand, and she thinks, that went too far. i got, I got to cover my tracks. It's, it's time for some damage control. What if somebody saw something? What if somebody heard? What if, they, what if Joseph talks first? So she calls in her servants, and, and they all come running in, and they're wondering what's going on. And so she goes, this Hebrew slave that my husband put over top of all of you, in charge of all of you guys, he's trying to make fools out of us. 
I was alone in my room here, and he came in to assault me, but I screamed. And when I screamed, he ran out. Perhaps you saw him running out half naked. And now with the others in the house knowing her story, she waits for her husband to come home. And when he arrives home, he simply asks her, how was your day, honey? And he knows from the look that something happened, that something went wrong. And so she looks at Potiphar and she goes, that Hebrew slave that you brought into our home is making fools of us. You want to know what he did today? You want to know what kind of danger you are putting me in? Today he came into my room and he tried to fool around with me. Yeah. Yeah, Dan, Joseph, that, that Hebrew slave you brought in. But when I screamed, he ran outside and then holding the cloak in her hand as the evidence, she said, he left this behind. Well, as you can imagine... When he hears the story, when he hears his wife's indictment against him, where she's questioning his wisdom, questioning and blaming him for putting Joseph in this position, he burned with anger. And in verse 20, it says, Potiphar took Joseph and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Joseph's done nothing wrong, and yet he gets caught up in the wake of another person's sin which is so often the case when we're tempted and we make a trade. You see, the momentary pleasure that we gain not only leads to us losing our greatest treasure, but it costs others around us something as well. Innocent people get hurt. In this particular case, Joseph got hurt. He did nothing wrong, but he finds himself in prison. Her husband Potiphar got hurt. He did nothing wrong, and he loses his best manager. Another ripple effect of this is that Potiphar, his household, and all the people in his household now miss out on the blessings of God. Remember, God was blessing everything Daniel did. This was a witness to all of these people of the reality of God, of his goodness, and of his blessings, and now that is removed from their lives. And you can see where it ends up. You know, some of us might even be thinking, Joseph should have just given in. Like, like Joseph, he's going to end up in prison anyways. You know, you might as well do the crime if you're going to get stuck with the time anyways. Because it cost him everything. Didn't it? Maybe not. It didn't cost him his greatest treasure. See, we look in verse 20. But while Joseph was there in prison... The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. Still. Still faithful to him. He was still faithful to God. God was still faithful to him. And God showed him kindness, granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all of those who were held in prison. He was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Joseph finds himself in a new situation, but he's restored. He's again restored to be able to bless over people, over activities, over responsibilities. The witness of God's goodness is now just shifted to a new location, but it did not shift from Joseph. There are new adversities, but the blessing of God's presence did not leave. The prison warden, what does he have left to think about? What do I want for dinner? 
Joseph's got the rest looked after because the Lord was with him and blessed him. And Joseph doesn't know this yet, but he is one step closer to Pharaoh's court, to Pharaoh's court where God's full plan of redemption will be revealed. But we'll get to that next week. You see, knowing the face that we, that we will stand in the face of temptation and that our enemy is strategic, I hope that builds a sense within you that we need to be equally strategic in our response to those temptations that come our way. Because I know this, folks, in the moment and the days ahead, you will be tempted. And so how can we stand resilient? I want to finish up with this fairly quickly. How can we stand resilient when tempted? Well, first of all, Joseph already demonstrated one of these for us. He already demonstrated one way. Joseph, not even knowing it, followed the instructions of Paul who he told to his young protege Timothy in verse 20, or 2 Timothy 2, 22, flee, flee evil desires and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with all those who call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. What's the first thing we can do? Flee. Say that with me. Flee. Step one. When you see bait in the water, you got nothing to prove. You don't have to prove how strong you are. You don't need to prove how tough you are. Go the other way. Remember that movie back in the 80s, Back to the Future? Marty McFly would always find himself in some sort of conflict with Biff, right? And he'd be like, no, Biff, I'm just going to walk away. And what would Biff do? He'd entice him. What did he had? Chicken? And he'd turn around. Don't you call me chicken. And they'd get in a fight, and Marty would always lose, right? Joseph... He doesn't care. He's like, call me a chicken. I don't care. Call me whatever you want. Gone. I got nothing to prove, but I got everything to lose. And so he hits the road the other direction. That's the first tactic. The first tactic we can do is we can flee temptation. It's very, very effective. You should try it. It's very effective. But here's the reality. We can't always flee temptation. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we have to be able to stand. And in those moments... We can find our resilience. Paul said this in Romans 13, 12. He says, the night, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. See, Paul in this passage is describing this moment where the sky turns from, from a gray to a, a just, just a crack of light on the horizon. When, when the birds start to stir, when the birds start to sing. It's not daylight yet. It's just about to happen right before the sun crests the horizon and fills the sky with a glorious sunrise. This is symbolic of what Paul's saying here, is that we live in a world that remains broken by sin. We live in a world where we will face temptation, but the clock is ticking. The day of the Lord is coming. Christ's turn is ever nearer. It could come at any time. The clock is ticking. Be ready. How do we be ready, he says? Number one, remove the dark deeds. Remove the sinful temptations like dirty clothes from ourselves. Make no provision in your life for things that are tempting. Remove them. Avoid them. Do not feed them. Going back to the questions we asked a few moments ago, what are your danger areas? What types of things do you have a hard time saying no to? Once you identify them, cast them off. 
Make no space in your life for those things. Take them off like dirty clothes. So step number one, we can flee. Step number two, we can cast off things in our lives that tempt us. But then step number three, instead of wearing those things, we put on the armor of light. These weapons and these tools that are found in Christ. And this is the first time we see in Paul's writings, this is the first time we see in all of my discussions so far about temptation where it gives us the sense that we can and sometimes must take a defensive position. First, we flee. Secondly, we cast off all things. Thirdly, when we need to, we stand and we take that defensive position. We stand against the spiritual forces. Paul speaks about this in a couple of areas throughout his letters, but one of the most well-known is when he talks about spiritual forces and spiritual weapons in Ephesians chapter 6, where he talks about the armor of God, and you can read this in detail later this afternoon, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11, right through to the end of the chapter. But starting in verse 14, he says, Stand firm with the belt of truth around your waist. The belt of truth being Jesus Christ who said, I am the truth. The words of Christ strapped around us. With the breastplate of righteousness, which is our right relationship between us and God through the power of Jesus Christ. With the boots of the gospel of peace, so that we may speak and we may serve in the name of Jesus Christ. So we've cast off the deeds. We've cast off that which condemns and tempts us. And said so we put on the armor of God. We've put on the boots of peace as we go and we serve or we minister. We are the hands and feet of Christ, bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to all people. If you're busy doing that, you won't have time to do the other stuff. We put on the boots of faith, boots of peace. And then we strap on the shield of faith so when the enemy comes at us with fear, with doubt, with anxiety, we keep the faith in Christ. With the helmet of salvation, where we win the battle for our minds and we think upon the things of Christ, not the things of the world that the enemy tries to tempt us and lure us away with. And then we stand with the sword of the Spirit. The only offensive weapon we're given. Everything else is defensive. But the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, is the offensive weapon we are given. And just like Jesus in the desert says, it is written. God has said, do not twist God's Word. I know God's Word is the response he sends back to the enemy. In life, when we are tempted, our greatest treasure is to know that God is with us. Just like Job. And because he is with us, he has given us the tools and he has given us the plan that we can follow so that we will not lose our greatest treasure for momentary pleasure. It all begins with Jesus, who knows and overcame every struggle, every temptation that we face. But not only did he overcome them, but he came to deal with the consequences of the sins, because all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And because we have been enticed and because we have sinned, it cost us something. It cost every single person of all times and all places, it cost us our relationship with God. The ability for us to be in a relationship with God, that's, that's the cost, the consequence of sin. But Jesus came to pay that price, to deal with that. Remember earlier I said how our sin leads to innocent people getting hurt? There's no better example of that than Jesus himself. 
where he who was without sin became sin, became our sin, so that through him we may enter into this new life and be restored to God. The innocent got hurt because of our sin. But just as sin asks us to make a great exchange, so too Jesus asks us to make a great exchange. Where he says, cast off that old life. Place your trust in me. Believe in me. Surrender your life to me. And I'll give you a new life. A new life that is abundant now and for all of eternity. Not a life free of problems. Not a life free of temptation. But a life where you are equipped. Where you are in God's plan. You are in his will. And you can stand and endure. And learn that in all situations, whether it's adversity or temptation, that you can be resilient. Why? Because the Lord is with you. If you do not know Jesus in that personal sense right now, I invite you to take the opportunity right now. If you're watching online, there's, there's a box where you can raise your hand and say, I accept Christ into my life. I invite you to pray with somebody. And click that prayer button here on, on site. I can welcome you to the front here afterwards in a safe way we can talk and pray about this. If you feel like you need more information, I, I, you can feel something in your heart saying, yes, that's what I'm missing. That's what I need, but I, I'm just not quite sure of it all yet. That's why Alpha exists. If that's what you're thinking right now, then the next step for you is to sign up to come to Alpha tomorrow night for just one week. Just come once and try it. And see what happens through it. Because Jesus wants to give you a plan and become your greatest treasure. And it's not worth that momentary pleasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ. A gift that is beyond value. It's more valuable than anything that this world ever has to offer. We thank you, Father, that Jesus, that you can be our greatest treasure. I pray that, that those of us who've been walking with you for a while, if we've slipped away, that we will reaffirm in this moment right now that Jesus, you are our greatest treasure, that we would confess and we would repent of, of, of the temptations and the sins that we've given into, and that we would not allow those momentary pleasures to keep us from you a moment longer. Lord, for those who don't have that relationship, but there's something inside them right now saying, need to say yes. I pray right now, Lord, that, that they would just surrender their lives to Christ. That as he gave his life for them, they would give their life to him. And find the joy, the hope, the peace, and the love that exists in doing life with Christ. Help us, Lord, as a church to be instruments, to be to those who are equipped with the armor of God, that we would not only stand firm against temptations in our own lives, but that we would be those who go forth as an example to the world what it means to live for Christ and to lead people to find out where they can find his love and grace and forgiveness as well. I pray this all in Jesus' name.